So hi, my name is Minerva Jean. My pronouns are she, her, and I am connecting today from the Seminole, Taino, Tequesta, Miccosukee, and Masago lands in Miami, Florida. Um, I am the co-leader of the Climate and Culture Action Team, and it is my pleasure to be here with you all at CCL's Inclusion Conference. So today I'm here to introduce Zara Biabani. Zara Biabani is a climate activist, influencer, CEO, and writer. Her content focuses on climate change, hope, optimism, and humor and action items. After unexpectedly establishing a career as an online sustainability educator and influencer in her junior year at Vanderbilt University, Zara decided to jump headfirst into the waters of entrepreneurship and authorship. Her startup, In The Loop, is the first rental clothing company for Veda's sustainable and ethical fashion brands. Her upcoming book, signed by Mango Publishing, is titled Climate Optimism, Climate Wins and Creating Systemic Change Around the World. And it unpacks the cognitive biases that make optimism difficult to cultivate, along with encouraging environmental trends of the last decades and examples of communities in the global South pioneering unique solutions to the climate crisis. So thank you so much for joining us and take it away, Zara. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am calling in from Houston, uh, Karan Kawas in Akokisas land. Um, and my pronouns are she, her. Um, and I'm so stoked to be here on this Saturday to talk to you all about climate optimism and what I believe is a framework necessary for making lasting, sustainable, and feasible change uh, for the planet that we all love and call home. So I want to first start off with how I define climate optimism and then kind of have some interactions asking y'all what you think climate optimism is and what it means to you. Um, I define it as a framework based on the idea that we can restore the earth back to health and in doing so, protect the people that inhabit this planet. I think something essential to that definition is the inclusion of the people component, which I know you are all very familiar with um, in terms of climate justice education and realizing how central it is to the environmental movement and how frequently it has been left out of environmental spaces. So that is how I define climate optimism. Um, I would love to hear from anyone who can unmute themselves or in the chat, what occurrence in the last month, if any, has given you climate optimism. Okay, so we got one from Debbie Chang um, saying this conference. Then we've got from Henry Slack saying the Inflation Reduction Act. Both definitely great ones. Another one, the passing of the IRA and joining CCL. Then Ashrath said ways to figure out how to improve BIPOC in the communities with increase in awareness and diversity in climate. And Al Lindbergh said large city in Pakistan signing the fossil fuels non-proliferation treaty. That is huge. Liana, Liana from Houston, maybe. Um, all the prep work, or I'm sorry, Kristen from Houston, attending a climate summit in Houston. Liana says, 
all the prep work for the global climate strike next week. Got We've got a lot. Awesome. Expanding relationships with our CCL chapter. Patagonia's transfership. That is definitely a great one. Madeline says, learning about what my country is doing locally to reduce emissions. And then Lisa says, the cancellation of student debt. It shows big, bold moves are possible. This is awesome. I love that we have a mix of, you know, on on the Patagonia front, corporate action. And then we've got federal action with the IRA. We've got state-based action or city action with the city in Pakistan signing the fossil fuels non-proliferation treaty. And then we've got organizing. So an organization like CCL joining it or engaging further with it. Um, And that is a really great segue into what I think is necessary for climate optimism. Not only being aware of all the good news that is going on in the world, but also knowing how to best engage with it. And I am of the belief that local engagement is the best thing you can do to cultivate this sense of climate optimism that is really effective in head-on conquering climate anxiety or eco-anxiety. I found in my years of, of organizing, the thing that has given me the most hope is being involved in my university's attempts to file a legal complaint against our university um, for its continued investment in fossil fuels, um, part of the larger divestment movement. Um, and like it's like many of you seem to be a part of a, a larger organization that you feel empowered by the change you are a part of, even if things aren't immediate to happen, because we know that it's not that easy. If it were that easy, we would be living in a very different environment right now. But being part of the movement with its ups and downs and in community with people who are with you throughout that is the most invaluable thing. And I think that is absolutely the foundation of climate optimism. But in addition to that, there are tangible, objective, empirical things that you can look to to imbue you with this sense of hope for our future. And a lot of it comes from looking to the past. One thing that I think is plaguing, especially Gen Zers, the generation that I'm a part of, um, the largest age demographic in the world, is that we tend to not reflect on history while seeing today as the worst it's ever been. But I'm sure most of you have a robust historical education, and we know that things in many different ways, have been a lot worse than they are today. For example, if we're thinking through what we're just getting over a once-in-a-century pandemic, previous pandemics have decimated tens of thousands of more people, leaving tens of thousands of more people more destitute than COVID, and vaccinations have been really slow to roll out. Obviously, the COVID vaccine was incredibly fast. And that's one example of something that was quite groundbreaking, earth-shattering, and looking in context of what has happened previously can help us better understand what's happening in the present. Similarly, we tend to make claims like the the world is getting worse, and it definitely feels like that to us, but 
looking across different fields like child mortality rates, uh, infant mortality rates, um, hunger levels in developing countries, uh, the rate of HIV and AIDS, those things have been getting better. And that's because we've been putting in the work. And that's was because we believe that it can get better. Obviously, the climate is not fit into that same category. Things have been getting worse. Um, and we're heading on a really dangerous path. We all know this. And that's why we're all here. But in order to make change, we need to believe that change is actually possible. And in the past, I think it's helpful to reflect on uh, particular instances where the world has come together to make a positive impact when it comes to climate change. So one thing that I always like to talk about is the healing of the ozone layer. It's not completely healed, but very much more so than what it once was in the 80s. When the international community realized that there is a growing hole in the ozone layer, letting sunlight and harmful rays heat our planet even more, and the international community resolved to ban the chemicals that were really causing this, so chlorofluorocarbons. And today, because of the Kigali Amendment, our ozone layer is almost healed. Now, today that almost sounds ludicrous, like a whole international community coming together on this huge issue. But it happened before and it can happen again. And that is what gives me hope in addition to actually engaging in that action on the ground. So my goal is to make people aware of the historical trends of progress and how the same can and should apply to environmental action. And I do this through sending out a weekly newsletter called Weekly Earthwinds, where I highlight positive news stories from around the world, whether it's local, national, NGO-based, or corporate-based, that can give people hope for continued progress. I would like to share just a few of them. I know I asked y'all to share, and that was great, but there are some that have I've picked up on in the recent year and a half that have really kind of solidified as trends. One example is land back. Now, in my research of collecting these new stories, again, over the past year and a half, I've seen at least four instances, and this is based in the states, of either churches or indigenous groups themselves buying land, or sometimes even states or municipalities granting land back to indigenous communities, which is incredible because that not only is beneficial for the planet, but also its people, and indigenous people steward 78% of the world's biodiversity but receive less than 1% of the funding. So giving them back the land that they have had and have had stripped away from them is essential to healing the planet because they now have to take care of it and they've been doing it for so long. And I've been so surprised to see how that trend has increased over the past year and a half. Of course, it has so much further to go and there's a lot of important work that has to be done. but. I think the fact that governments are increasingly recognizing the importance of this is really significant. Another related example is that clear cutting 
and uh, like slash burning has typically been banned by the U.S. government. But some indigenous communities have used it as a way to clear everything in a forest so that old like fuel sources can't be are, aren't made worse by forest fires. And this way of going about interacting with the land has been criminalized. But recently in California, the State Department has began to listen to these communities and saying there is some point in our traditional scientific knowledge needs to be opened up to people who have actually been practicing and engaging with the land. So that's one example. And I write a lot about that in my book because I'm really hopeful about that. To get into specifics, in June of 2021, the federal government transferred 80 acres of land on Oahu to Native Hawaiians from homesteads. In September of 2021, a church in California donated, um, I don't know the acreage, but acres of land to an indigenous group that the church is on. And there's several more examples that we could go into. Another one of the biggest trends that gives me hope is the legal innovation that is happening all over the world. My favorite is rights of nature legislation. That basically gives nature rights that human beings typically have, meaning that you can be charged with a criminal act if you do harm to a area, um, even a crop, a body of water, because all of those entities have rights because they exist for more than just human purposes. And I think that is really exciting to me because it's more than just a legislative or legal shift, but it's a fundamental shift in how we're understanding what nature is and why it exists. Ecuador was the first country to incorporate this into their constitution. And a lot of South American countries have really pioneered this rights of nature movement. But it's even presented itself in the U.S. in a tribunal court in Minnesota with an indigenous group asserting that the wheat crop called Manumen has rights and any efforts to harm that crop through pipeline infrastructure or other extractive efforts are in violation of those, those crops' rights. So it's not crazy to think that this could be the law of the land in in certain places. In fact, in Pennsylvania, it has been pretty unexpectedly picked up by several local communities, even those that voted in favor of Trump, which is really interesting. In uh, Tomaqua, Pennsylvania, 70% of citizens voted for Trump in the 2016 election. But the city passed an ordinance to recognize the rights of nature. And more than 30 local governments in the U.S. have also done so, which is really mind-blowing to me. I had no idea about this until I started doing the research for the book. Several bodies of water have also been granted personhood or righthood uh, that protects them against whims of industry, including the Wanganui River of New Zealand, 
the Ria Altrato of Colombia, the Sukhna Lake of India, and those in Orange County, all the lakes in Orange County, and Lake Erie of Ohio, which is very interesting. There's also other ecosystems that are that have been provided or protected under rights of nature. So this is the kind of second trend that I find to be the most interesting. And I would love to know in the chat box how you think rights of nature recognition could fundamentally change our relationship with the planet. Got Bob saying it can impact externalized costs. Sure, Allison. Yeah. I'm just wondering how you think rights of nature recognition can impact humans' relationship with the planet. And to repeat, rights of nature recognition and legislation basically grants entities or natural bodies, ecosystems with legal rights similar to personhood. Yes, I love that. Yeah, Henry, definitely a tough question, but something I love to think about because I think it could just be a monumental shift. Um, but Henry said, big change of laws, not putting humans above all rivers, forests, etc." Debbie says, I love this, Debbie, perhaps by changing our perspective from anthropomorphic people-centered to whole environment, ecosystem, big picture-centered, since people aren't the only ones with rights. Definitely agree. Ashwath said, provide safer communities and nature should be respected to live full of full of poor air quality. Janet said, changes the mindset from individualism to community, like Dr. Briscoe spoke earlier about, for sure. So let me said, paradigm shift. That's a great way to put it, for sure. Eileen, yup, corporations did receive personhood to our detriment under Citizens United, but rights of nature threatens to do the same thing for nature, which I think is just very interesting because that is one of the legal arguments that the U.S. has already granted non-human entities personhood. And so why can't that be extended to nature? I love y'all's answers. Thank you so much for, for sharing. I love reminding ourselves, uh, like Liana said, that these natural entities are part of our communities, not the setting for our communities. And Linda says, rights of nature recognition makes sense in our Western mind. I would hope that it would help people internalize the notion of stewardship and reciprocity that Native peoples practice. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for sharing that. So that is the second biggest reason that I really have hope for the planet based on looking at the trends of the, uh, the last decade. Another interesting concept within the legal field that is encouraging to me is the growing movement to criminalize ecocide. Can people tell me in the chats if they've heard about ecocide? Okay, awesome. Um, sounds like people mix mix back, but most people haven't heard of it. So would love to talk about it because very interesting. Um, and as I talk about all these trends, I want to emphasize that there are several ways to get involved with each specific kind of movement. Um, and so happy to talk about that at the end if people have questions about what organizations to look into. Ecocide is basically 
the criminalization of any harms against the environment. Now that sounds like, oh, okay, cool. That, that makes sense. But the big thing is that the movement to make ecocide a crime is focused on getting it recognized by the International Criminal Court. So the concept of it was actually presented 49 years after the dumping of Agent Orange in the Vietnam War. And the island nations of Vanuatu and the Maldives presented this idea to the ICC International Criminal Court. And this court investigates four types of crime identified as the most heinous ever. Um, Genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and crimes of aggression. And because of the international scope of the court, any crimes within those categories that are waged against a country that has signed on to the Rome Statute are subject to international punishment. So it's a big deal. And so the ecocide movement, which has actually been endorsed by the Pope, calls for the criminalization of ecological genocide in the highest court of the law. Interestingly enough, it was actually part of the earliest drafts of the Rome Statute, which is like the enshrining document for the ICC, but it was removed due to opposition from three countries. Can you guys guess what those countries are? U.S. is one of them. So it's actually the U.S., the U.K., and the Netherlands. which is very interesting to me. But since that time, uh, the movement to make ecocide part of the four, well, it would be five, internationally recognized crimes has really blossomed, again, being endorsed by the Pope, which is awesome. And it has been invoked several times by indigenous groups in Brazil, uh, accusing the Bolsonaro administration of waging ecocide against the Amazon. But since it hasn't been enshrined into law, nothing can really be done. But some good news is in 2016, the International Criminal Court added destruction of the environment under what is the crime of wartime offenses, which is very interesting. So it doesn't yet have its own spot as a crime in and of itself, but ecological destruction is a subcrime of wartime offenses, which is very interesting. And also interesting is that national ecocide laws have emerged in a few countries. And again, I would love for y'all to guess which countries they are because it is surprising. Or maybe even region because it's all centralized in one region. So let's guess what region they're centralized in. Okay. It is actually, and David, to answer your question, yes, I will, for this, include the citation. Um, ecocide laws have been passed in Central Asian states. So Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan Republic, Tajikistan, Georgia, Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova and Armenia. So no one guessed that, but that's kind of the point of, of these questions is, and the, and the um, link to that citation I posted in the chat, but that's what's 
really interesting about what I've found is like we originally talked about the rights of nature laws and how that's primarily pioneered by South American countries and these ecocide laws primarily pioneered by Central Asian countries. And it's easy to say, oh, this country is doing really good things for our planet or this country is making like they're the most planet friendly country or region. But in my opinion, the reality is that there is good stuff happening all around the world. That's another just general lesson that gives me hope for action against the climate crisis is no country, no region has a monopoly on climate action. Of course, in certain areas, it's easier than others, but it's happening all over the world. Norway is an example of a mixed bag country as two thirds of their import exports are coal, but they have been leading the world in terms of EV adoption. They have the most EVs on the road per capita. And yeah, like Shane said, it's usually thought that the Nordic countries are the most eco-friendly. But I think if we think about the issues of social justice in those countries, the often the, the frequent lack of diversity and uplifting of indigenous communities, it's easy to see that though we tend to think they're the most progressive on climate action, maybe it's not true progressiveness on climate action. So I kind of say all this to, to point you towards positive trends that I've been seeing in the environmental space and how none of these are bound to one location, but also to inform you about the many opportunities that you have to get involved with these different movements. And I go through many different trends that I've picked up on at length in the book I'm writing. Um, and honestly, I've been so inspired to just get more involved with specific targeted movements that have already seen successes that are picking up momentum. And that could radically change the way that we engage with other humans and the planet that we live on. So that is kind of what I wanted to talk about today, um, the trends that I picked up on, where they exist, and how you can get involved with that. Thank you so, so much, Zara. That was a really interesting talk, and it's actually my first time hearing about Ecoside. So um, again, thank you for this wonderful presentation, and we'll go into some uh, a little Q&A session that our panelists have asked. So. Um, our first one is from Ashworth, and he asks, Zara, what do you think the future will hold after more join the climate movement? I think that um, more will join when it becomes immediately urgent for them. I think there is a lot of people in the climate movement that really care about the future of humanity and non-human beings. But I think the remaining fraction of people that have not yet joined the movement are those that will really only join it once they themselves have been personally affected. And that's difficult to grasp because it becomes a, a, a selfish thing almost. Once you're faced with it, you recognize how important it is. But I think one thing that gives me hope is you can really engage with these people by 
telling them how climate change will affect them in their lives, how if they care about family, it's going to affect their you know ability to have grandchildren or if they care about sports it's going to affect like the conditions of uh, uh you know the the weather during different sports seasons and make it harder for athletes to play outside how it affects really anything that they could care about and i think bringing that urgency in that personalization is a really great way to bring people into the movement so to more directly answer your question i think when more join the climate movement because it is communicated to them that it is urgent and here and pressing and it will affect everyone, that will be able to shift the narrative, make governments listen and take action, make corporations listen and take action, and and hopefully can be done within the next eight years. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Our second question is from Callum and they ask, have you seen positive impacts on the environment from rights of nature laws? In, in Minnesota, the Fond du Lac band are not able to have a rising season. Harvest Mamun, harvest Mamun this year due to climate change among other issues. Yeah, so I haven't, so in Ecuador actually, even though they were the first country to uh, incorporate it into their constitution, the government like didn't really enforce it until a very recent case. Um, and there was a mine in Ecuador that was proposed to be built. Um, and until this point, the rights of nature law just kind of existed and it was there. Um, but this, this particular instance, it was, I'm posting an article in the chat, um, the Ecuadorian high court, affirm the constitutional protections by banning the the mines activity um which was you know significant um posting that in the chat so um that's honestly one of the only ones i know of where it like directly hindered extractive activities um but hopefully you know since it's rather new in the US, like you were mentioning with the Minnesota Manuman case, I'm hoping that we'll be able to see some more direct effects of it. I do know in Pennsylvania, like I mentioned, in very conservative areas, it has been implemented in cities. Um, I know that they have used that as an argument to ban fracking in those areas, but it's kind of been stuck in legal, you know, it's been stuck in the courts and not a lot of movement there. So this case with Los Cedros um, cloud forest in Ecuador is one of the only ones I know of, but if anyone knows of any others that have been successful, please do inform me. So our third question is from Wandi and they ask globally speaking in terms of climate change, what measures can be implemented such as helping a country like Haiti, which has been brutally hit by earthquakes? So I think that one of the best things that can be done, um, especially for helping a country that has not contributed very much at all to the climate crisis, is redistribution. And this is actually, as I'm sure many of you know, um, a big deal with the United Nations and wealthier nations pledging that they would give, I think it's a hundred billion 
maybe 10 billion uh in in money to uh less developed countries for their adaptation and mitigation efforts um and they are they have not fulfilled that promise which is predictable and very unfortunate what is actually really cool is uh, a recent piece of good news is that in Boston, uh, their city just uh, in Massachusetts, I'm sorry, uh, Boston, Massachusetts, there the city recently just uh, had a proposal for climate reparations to be an option for citizens when they are filing taxes. So they would be able to give money to these LDCs, least developed countries, for their mitigation and adaptation efforts. And this would be the first subnational authority to allow citizens to do that. I'm going to post a link um, here in a second. But that is the first instance of a subnational authority doing something like that. And I think that's really cool because it empowers citizens to actually have a stake in decisions or dialogues that are oftentimes so like United Nations distance from us on, on as humans. Um, so I think climate reparations is something very necessary, not only for protecting our planet, but also like as a social justice commitment. People who have done the least are being harmed the most. We all know this. So honestly, I, in my opinion, that is something that needs to be done immediately. We've seen the harms of it not being done, like in Pakistan, what has just happened with the floods and the devastation for a country that contributes very, very little to the climate crisis. So that's that's what I would say, in, in my opinion. Thank you. So we've got a lot of um, amazing questions. We've got time um, for one more. So uh, this one is for, and for those who um, whose questions weren't able to be answered, I will, um, of course, be uh, giving you Zara's social media as well as website so that you can contact her with any more follow-up questions. But this one's from Debbie. And she says, I'm interested in sources, writers, books, scholarly articles on climate optimism and mental health. However, most of what floats to the top of my searches are white men. Who are some of the people that you follow? And since this is the inclusion conference, especially anyone who is a woman of color, thank you. That is a great question. Um, frankly, I know about one really prolific researcher who has published a lot on eco-anxiety, but um, I want to highlight the work of Mary Annalise Hegler. I'm not sure if any of y'all have heard of her. She's a Black woman, an amazing climate justice activist and writer. And she did a really interesting critique uh, on how we think of climate anxiety. Um, and I am going to put it in the chat. Um, okay, so definitely recommend you read this. Um, it's a very interesting critique, again, of this environmental doomism and how, uh, it, in a nutshell, she's asserting that it, it as an existential problem is mostly also a white problem because BIPOC communities, especially Black and Indigenous Indigenous communities, have faced existential threats before continue continued existential threats, 
And climate change is an aggravator of all of those. Whereas for many white folks, climate change is the first instance of an existential crisis that they're facing. Um, So she provides a really, really interesting take on why climate optimism is necessary and how it's not really an option for BIPOC communities, those who are facing the consequences of climate change immediately in the here and now. Uh, And I think it's a really good perspective shift on how we can reframe our eco-anxiety and our privilege because all of us, I'm assuming all of us are calling in from America. So even, even in that, we have a ton of privilege, how we can reframe what is plaguing us with anxiety into action. So definitely recommend her work. Um, and I will keep my eyes out if I see any uh, BIPOC women who speak out uh, about climate anxiety and research, because I also am interested in that as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.